turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. Uh, I, I, I do this so often that it shouldn't be a surprise, but to be quite honest with you, I'm surprised that almost two years into this study, we're just a little better than halfway through the book of Revelation, um, but we've just been having, uh, man, at least I have, just been having the time of my life just seeing what this book is all about. I've I got to tell you, I went years of my life intimidated by this book. You know, people ask questions about the book of Revelation, and inside I'd be going, oh boy, oh boy, I don't know what's up with all of that, you know. And so it's just been, man, it's just been a blast to go in there and find out that if you just do what God tells you to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and that is compare things spiritual with things spiritual, that the Spirit of God will reveal His truth to us, yea, the deep things of God. I mean, you don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to go outside of the Bible. You don't have to go to somebody else's language. All you got to do is take the book that God gave to you in your own language and do what he says to do with it. And all of a sudden, man, this thing comes to life. And we've been seeing that, that take place. We're in Revelation chapter 13. And we've, as you can see at the top of your sheet, we've... Uh, been seeking to build a biblical composite of the Antichrist now for the past eight weeks. Uh, this started when we got to, to verse 1 of chapter 13. So this has been, it's been a big deal, and the reason we've taken such a, a long period of time on that is because we believe, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that the one that's being referred to here in Revelation chapter 13, as mind-boggling as this is, we believe that this guy is somewhere alive on this planet. And we don't know exactly where he is, but somewhere in the Mediterranean area of this world, we could go there right now, and he's somewhere on this planet based on everything that we see in the Word of God. And so this does make all of what we're studying very, very relevant. I mean, here is a... a, a John got this revelation about 1,900 years ago, and now to think that we're living at the time where everything is coming together to see all of these events that the Word of God talks about begin to come together. And actually, we've, we've been in a section that began in chapter 6, dealing with the tribulation period. And what's wild is the book of Revelation, and we don't have time to go into all of this, but if you take the, the history that is covered in the book of Revelation, what you find is there is almost 3,000 years of human history that is covered. Now, there's only going to be 7,000 years of human history. And 3,000 of them are covered in the book of Revelation, and there's only 22 chapters. 22 chapters of the Bible cover 3,000 years, and check this out. 13 out of the 22 chapters have to do with seven years. A seven-year period of time that's going to take place on this planet in what we believe in the very, very near future, what the Bible calls the tribulation period. Jesus says there's never been a time like it before it. There'll never be a time like it after it. And, and the bulk of this book is, is taken up in talking about the tribulation period. And he brings us through that thing four times in, in those chapters. We're now making our way... Uh, from chapter 12 to 14. We're coming through it now for the third time, and he's showing us now what's going to be taking place in the tribulation period uh, in, in light of the Antichrist. And we began to look at this false prince, again, eight weeks ago. We started looking at his unique parentage, 
And we, in, in doing that, in, in showing the, the unique parentage that he has, we began talking about his family lineage. He's a very unique person in that he is a composite uh, of, of races, and he is a, a composite of nationalities, and you can see that under letter A. Then we began to look at his family likeness. Verse 2 of chapter 13 talks about the fact that, that John said he was a beast, which I saw, and he was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And this is, man, just one of the most incredible things in the world. We don't have time to go into this either. I'm just trying to pull our minds back into the flow of what we've seen. But what we find, as, as far as his family likeness is concerned, is he is like the beast that is in Job chapter 40, just an incredible study. God just takes the 13th beast found in the, the book of Job and just shows you incredible things about how he is like the beast that we're talking about here in Revelation chapter 13. And we saw the same thing in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel sees this same beast in a vision that the Lord gave to him several thousand years ago now. And then the last time, and of course last week we had communion. Last time, which would have been two weeks ago, we, we looked at his family legacy. And this one, to me, was probably the most incredible of all that we've seen in the, <clears throat> the book of Revelation. What we began to see is that this beast that's referred to here in chapter 13 is going to be none other than Satan incarnate. That's number one under letter C. He is Satan incarnate. We see in verse 2, right there toward the end of the verse, it says, And the dragon gave him his power. And, of course, chapter 12 and verse 9 leaves no doubt whatsoever as to who the dragon is. It is the devil. It is Satan. And, and we saw that, that what's taking place here in chapter 13, when you put it together with chapter 12 all the way through chapter 14, it, it, it is just an absolutely incredible thing that, it, that is happening here. There, there's something that is taking place above the earth. In chapter 12, it talks about what's taking place above the earth. And we saw that Michael the archangel is going to be at war with Satan. And all of the, the uh, uh, angels that would be under Michael's jurisdiction are going to be with Michael. All those that fell with Satan are going to be with Satan. And buddy, they are absolutely going to go at it. And what the Bible says is going to be the result of this thing is Satan is going to get his thinking lights knocked out and he's going to descend down to this earth. But, now check it out. While all that's going on above the earth, something is taking place at the very same time on the earth. And chapter 13 says that this Antichrist who is going to at this point have wooed the world and have this, this incredible following and he'll be talking peace and safety and all of these things and while all of this is going on at the midpoint in the tribulation period three and a half years into the thing while this war is going on on the earth the antichrist is assassinated and his body is laying in a uh, just a, a pile of blood no doubt the bible says it's coming from a head wound uh, from a sword, it might well be that his, that his head got chopped off in, in this thing. I, 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 we could only hope. I don't know. But, but while, while this thing's going on in heaven, that's what's going on on the earth. And yet it gets even more wild than that. While all this is going on in heaven and this is going on on the earth, there's something that's taking place beneath the earth. And there is one who was 
cast into the bottomless pit when he died. And who, who was that, y'all? It was Judas. And what it says in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 7 is that while all of this thing that I've just described is going on, Judas is ascending out of the bottomless pit so that what happens is this. The, the Antichrist is assassinated on the earth and at that point, when he's dead on the earth, Satan himself comes from above and descends into the body of the Antichrist to become Satan incarnate, while at the same time, the soul and spirit of Judas that went to his own place, the bottomless pit, the soul and the spirit of Judas ascends out of the bottomless pit at that very same time to come in to that body so that not only is the Antichrist at the three and a half year point in the tribulation Satan incarnate, but he is, if you will, Judas reincarnate. The soul and spirit of Judas comes in to this one. Now, you, you remember last time when we were talking about all, all of this, do you, do you remember me saying to you that since we started the study of the book of Revelation, that there is a, a question that has come from more people than any other question that, that I've had in, in this whole study. Do you remember what it was? It, it was all about Satan being able to approach the throne of God. And we saw that in chapter 12 where he is, in, in the oldest book of the Bible, the book of Job, when we see him there, he is before the throne of God and he is accusing God's children. When you see him in the last book of the Bible, he is before the throne of God and he is accusing God's children. He spends most of his time, believe it or not, in heaven. Yes, he is a roaring lion that goeth on this earth seeking whom he may devour, but he loves to be in the presence of God, getting in God's face about me and you, accusing us before God. I mean, just an unbelievable thing. And that, that, that has prompted more questions than, than anything else in the study of the book of Revelation until... We taught what we taught last week, and I will say, it's no longer the issue. This whole Judas thing surfaced a question, and, and now, now listen to me. The question was not whether or not Judas is actually going to ascend out of the bottomless pit and actually come into the Antichrist. That is not the issue. I think I had one person that said, I'm going to have to think on that. I think the rest of us, it was pretty clear. No shot intended there. Um, but, but now, now check this out. There was an issue. There was an issue that, that surfaced through this thing. And it had to come, uh, it, it, it came when we were going through the book of Acts. How many of you already know what I'm, what I'm getting ready to talk about right now? Okay, this is going to be fun because some of you don't know. You, you, didn't, you didn't see this thing happening. But the, the questions were all about what we saw in Acts chapter 1 because there were quite a few folks when we were coming through the context there in Luke's account in Acts chapter 1, now understand now in Acts chapter 1, Luke is the one that is writing the book of Acts. And in chapter 1, in this passage, he is quoting Peter. They're in the upper room and he's, Luke is quoting Peter. Okay? Now, <clears throat> what a lot of folks noticed as we were coming through that is that this passage just out and out contradicts another passage in the Word of God. And it prompted so many questions that I felt like we ought to 
just give it the time and let you be able to to work through this thing. And, and, and now listen, this is going to be, we're going to have fun this morning. So y'all just relax, get your seat belt on, and, and let's, let's go. And what this will do for you is it'll show you, what do you do when you come to a place in the Word of God that does not seem to, to, to line up? And I've, I'm telling you, I've had fun. So why don't, we, why don't we turn to both places, Acts chapter 1, and why don't you just get something there, and then get Matthew 27, and get something placed there, and get your study sheet. Now this is, if you haven't already flipped your study sheet over, uh, you can do that now, and, and so get, get all these places, and get your pen, and get your Bible, and, and get your study sheet, and yeah. I'm telling you, if we were designing this worship center today, we would have uh, kind of like on the plane, you know, we, the, the tray comes down, and you put your food, we, we'd have trays that would come down from the pew in front of you, and get yourself all set up, but if anybody would like to see that happen, you just donate the money, and we'll be glad to do it. And... Maybe some of y'all during the tribulation period can take care of that. All right. Just kidding. You need to loosen up just a little bit, okay? <clears throat> All right. Now, let, let me remind you of the principle of Bible study. Most of you folks uh, have, have come through uh, a series that we, we cannot stop talking about. And if you don't know about the How to Study the Bible series... You need to check into that. You need to do this. But one of the, the, the principles of Bible study that we need to apply in a case such as this is what is called... Do you remember what it's called? Somebody? The apparent contradiction factor. Do you remember that? It was the 15th of the 15 factors that focus Bible study, okay? It's the apparent contradiction factor. And what the apparent contradiction factor is this is always give the Bible the benefit of the doubt and understand that there are no contradictions in the Bible. There are only apparent contradictions. And now, now listen, I'll just tell you. When it comes to apparent contradictions, Acts chapter 1 and Matthew 27, y'all, is a doozy. I'm, I'm telling you, it doesn't get any, any more contradictory than, than this. In fact... It doesn't just surface a contradiction. Check this out. It surfaces in the one passage. It surfaces three of them in one passage. I mean, you look at this thing, and they're not close. Now, how many of you, in, in seeking to share your faith, how many of you have ever had somebody throw that thing out to you? Yeah, well, you, you're saying the Bible this, the Bible that. Well, I don't go with the Bible because the Bible is full of contradictions. How many of you had somebody throw that in your face? Okay. Just about all of us, probably all of us that have ever engaged in a conversation with, with a lost person. The Bible's full of contradictions. Well, I, I would just, I would encourage you to do this. When they throw that out to you, throw it right back. Oh, really? Well, name one. Now, every once in a while, I mean, one out of about 250,000 Really, one out of 250,000 is probably going to have one. But most of the people that say that say that because somebody that they like, their parents or a professor somewhere said that, and they thought, yeah, I like that. You know why they like that? Because they don't want to follow an authority. 
And so it's real convenient. Oh, no, I don't buy that Bible trash because it's full of contradictions. Well, could you name one? Well, no, but I know they're in there. Okay, well, well listen, why don't you do this? When you find one, let me know about that. Because, man, I, I'm a believer that every word of God is what he wanted in, in the, this book. But now, I will say this. If you're going to get one that's going to throw a contradiction at you, this is probably going to be the one. This is, a, this is a pretty popular one. That's why a lot of you, when we came through this passage, dee, 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 something went, went off there. Okay, so, so that we're all dialed into as to what the problems actually are in these, these two passages, let's just take a second to read them. Okay, now, now I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read them right now, and you just see if you can see the contradictions here. Okay, let, let's, we'll start with the passage that we read last time that tipped some of you off that there was a, a contradiction or apparent contradiction in Acts chapter 1, and let me just remind you here, getting into the flow of this thing, that, that Luke is giving us the account of what was taking place in the upper room. Okay, the 120 are up there waiting, as per Jesus' instruction, to be endued with power. Okay, and while they're up there, Peter stands up to speak. Oh, surprise, surprise. And, and he begins to, to talk to him about the need to, to replace Judas in the 12. And in the midst of talking about that, Peter explains the whole deal with Judas and what happened after he betrayed the Lord. But I want you to watch what Peter says about it. And you, you can see that he, he's talking about Judas at the end of verse 16 and verse 17, that he, Judas, was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. And now watch what Peter says here. Now this man, who's this man? Okay, this man, Judas, purchased a field with the reward of the iniquity and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch as that field is called in their proper tongue, Alkadama, that is to say, the field of blood. Okay, you got that? Okay, now, now, now listen before we go now. Realize that every single word that we just read is the very words of God and every single word that we just read every single one of them were specifically chosen by God and God took all of them and placed them together to give us an historical account that is absolutely 100% accurate do you believe that okay well then turn to Matthew chapter 27 now by the time we get to Matthew 27 it's the morning after Judas betrayed the Lord okay it's the morning after he did the thing last night okay it's the morning after it's the day that our Lord was to be crucified and you can see in verse 2 that Jesus has been bound and is being led away to face Pilate and then verse 3 says then Judas which had betrayed him when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It's not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore, that field was called the field of blood 
unto this day. Okay, now understand. Every single word that we just read right there is the very words of God. And all of the words that are there were specifically chosen by God. And all of them were placed together to give us an historical account that is absolutely 100% accurate. The only problem is this account contradicts the passage that we just read in the book of Acts. Okay. Now, if I were to fall over right now and croak, you going to cash your book in? Okay. How many of you are nervous right now? You get a little... Oh, I'm telling you, I remember the first time somebody threw this up in my face. You, you know how you, your face gets hot? You know what I'm talking about? The little blood rush going there? Uh, yeah, yeah, well, I'll tell you what. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, now, just in case some of you didn't get enough sleep last night, which is normally the case for some of you, you need to go to bed earlier on Saturday night. You're missing a great service so far, okay? But did, did you see the contradictions here? Okay, the, the first one had to do with what? With who actually bought the field, right? Who actually bought the field? Acts 1.18 says, now, this man which is Judas, purchased a field with the reward of the iniquity. But back in Matthew 27, verses 5 to 7, it says that Judas cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and the chief priest took the silver and bought the potter's field. So, if I'm, if I'm a skeptic on the Word of God, you know what? I'm in your face right now going... Come on with it. Who bought it? Did Judas buy it or did the chief priest buy it? The, the second contradiction. <laughs> prove it. That, that's the way those things normally go, isn't it? Okay, the, the second contradiction has to do with how Judas actually died. Acts 1.18 says, And falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst and all his bowels gushed out a lovely sight but Matthew 27 5 is pretty clear about the fact that Judas cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself so again if I'm a skeptic a skeptic I'm in your face so which is it man did he fall or did he hang himself and then the third prove it and then the third contradiction has to do with why the field was called the field of blood. Acts 1, 18 and 19 say that it was called that because it was the field in which Judas' bowels gushed out. Uh, the, if you're still in Acts, you, you can see it there. Verse 18 says, And falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, in so much as that field is called in their proper tongue, Alcadabah or whatever. I don't know how to say the, the thing. I, I'm struggling with English, you know. That is to say, the field of blood. But back in Matthew 27, what it tells us is that it was called the field of blood because the chief priest purchased the field with the price of blood, where we get the, the term blood money, and that the field was purchased to bury strangers in. So which is it? Was it called the field of blood because Judas' blood gushed out there? Or was it called the field of blood because it was purchased with 
blood money to, to bury people in. Okay, so you, you see the, the dilemma here. Okay, so what kind of what biblical gymnastics do we got to do to bail God out of this one? You know, because I'm sure that it, when God was inspiring Luke to, to pin these words in Acts chapter 1, God just, you know, he had a brain cramp, you know, and, and he forgot that, that he had inspired Matthew to record something different in Matthew chapter 27. And you know how it is. I mean, he got the, the, the Bible completed, and he went, ah, there. And then he looks back over his shoulder a little bit later and says, whoops. Now, something you need to know about God, y'all. There's never been a time in God's eternal existence, much less man's 6,000 years that he's been in existence, there's never been a time when the God of the Bible has ever said, whoops. There's never been a time. Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4 that God is the rock. Listen, his work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment. They're right. He is, Moses goes on and says he is a God of truth. And without iniquity, just and right is he. David said in Psalm 18 and verse 30, As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord, he goes on in the very same verse, he says the word of the Lord is tried. In other words, it's, it's refined, it's pure, it's without any flaws or any impurities. It's totally without error or contradiction. David said in Psalm 19 and verse 7, the law of the Lord is what? It's perfect. In Psalm 12, verse 6, David says, the words, the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth purified how many times? Seven times. Seven being the number of completion and perfection in, in the Bible. Proverbs 30 and verse 5. I love it. It says, every word of God is pure. And check it out. That includes every word of Matthew 27 and every word of Acts chapter 1. And if we believe that, then quite honestly, we shouldn't have to struggle real hard to bail God out. We shouldn't have to come to this and make all kind of speculations to make it fit. And I've just got to tell you, I, I've been guilty through the years of copping out on this whole deal and making speculations that if I was a critic of the Bible, I'd be all in my face over speculating. Now, now folks, if it's God's book, I shouldn't have to read anything into it, right? I ought to just be able to let this thing give its own answer. I ought to just be able to, to let it do its thing. Okay, so let's, let's do it. All right? Let's talk first of all, and I can already tell you that you don't have enough area in the resolve to, to answer it. Just write small and fast. Okay? Okay, let's talk first of all about who actually bought the field. Oh, you say, y'all tell her you want to just do this next week? Let's just come back and just do it next week. You want to? No, okay, we'll, we'll do it then. All right. Again, Acts chapter 1 says that Judas bought the thing. Matthew 27 says the chief priest did. Okay, now when you stay right in both passages, 
And you just think very normally and very logically, there's really, you'll see this, there's absolutely no problem. Now, let me show you what I mean. Let's look again at Acts chapter 1 and verse 18, Luke quoting Peter, and Peter simply says that this man, Judas, purchased a field with the reward of the iniquity. And of course, we know that the reward of iniquity, the reward that was, was paid for Judas to be betrayed into the hands of, of sinners was, was how much? 30 pieces of silver, okay? Now, who was it that actually received that money? Talk to me. It was Judas, right? I mean, that's the way the thing is set up. But do you know who it was that actually paid Judas the 30 pieces of silver? And, and I'm just telling you, when you put this into the mix here, this is just absolutely unbelievable. Go back to Matthew 26. That'll put us right where we need to be here in Matthew 27 as we compare Scripture with Scripture. But I want you to see what, what happens in, in chapter 26 and verse 14. Verse 14, now this is before the whole gig comes down. Verse 14 says, Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the, watch this now, went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will you give me? And I'll deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. And verse 16 says that from that time he sought to betray him. And of course, down in verse 48 and 49, you can see that he did. And then in verse 1 of chapter 27, it's the next morning, and evidently J Judas didn't get a whole lot of sleep that night. He's been feeling pretty guilty about this whole thing, especially in verse 3, when he saw that the result of what he had done is that Jesus is being condemned to death. Now, and this is just really strange because Judas knew good and stinking well that the chief priests have been wanting to kill him for several months now. Oh, surprise, surprise. Oh, you mean they're going to kill him? He knew that. But verse 3 says, when he saw that he was condemned, that's, that's he, Jesus, was condemned, repented. And we say, oh, great. Well, at least Judas repented. Okay, now, we really don't have time for this, but this is just too great of an occasion right here to be able to teach an incredible spiritual truth. And, and now, now listen real carefully. You need to understand that there's two kinds of repentance according to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. There's one kind, now listen, there's one kind of repentance that is brought about because of godly sorrow. And there's another kind of repentance that is brought about, the Bible says, because of worldly sorrow. Now listen to it. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly sorrow worketh or brings about repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh or brings about death. So, so check it out. God says that there's, there's two kinds of repentance, and each one is brought about by sorrow, but one is genuine repentance, and one is not. One is acceptable with God and brings about salvation and, and brings about restoration, 
and one isn't acceptable with God and brings about nothing but more sin and ultimately, as the Scripture says, death. But the type of, of sorrow, Paul says, is what determines whether it's acceptable, genuine repentance or not. It's according to what kind of sorrow that's bringing you to this point of repentance. And he says that one type of sorrow is godly sorrow. In other words, God is the source of the sorrow. And he says the other is worldly sorrow. And it's a, it's a human thing. It's, it's a, a flesh thing. It's a, a man is at the source of the sorrow. Or we could say that self is at the source of the sorrow. And, and let me show you how this plays into the context here. Now, obviously, Judas sinned against the Lord Jesus Christ back in chapter 26 and verse 49 when he betrayed him. But, but look at there in, in chapter 26 and following that, you'll, you'll notice that right after the Judas fiasco that there's another one of the disciples who sinned pretty majorly against the Lord as well, and that, of course, was who? Peter, okay? And in verse 69 to, to 75, what, what takes place there is he denies the Lord three times. Okay, so check it out. Both of these guys sinned, both Judas and Peter. And with each, how each of them respond to their sin, they become a perfect illustration of the two types of repentance that 2 Corinthians 7.10 talks about. Because now check this out. Both of these guys, after they sin, both of these guys, and, and, and now listen, the reason I'm going through this is because... Christians go through this worldly sorrow all the time, just right along with lost people. And Christians sometimes have godly sorrow. And you need to learn something. You can, oh, I'm telling you, this will help you to understand your sin problem a whole bunch if you'll catch this, okay? So we got Judas and we got uh, Peter, and both of them have sinned majorly, and both of them are going to show us in, in just tremendous form the two kinds of repentance that God says there are in 2 Corinthians 7.10. Okay, they both sin, and both of them are extremely sorrowful, and both of them want to do right, and both of them attempt to make restitution but there's a couple of things you better notice here you better notice who the focal point of the sorrow is Matthew 27 verse 3 says that Judas repented what's the next word himself so who's the focal point y'all himself now listen it wasn't that he felt sorrow because he sinned against the Lord he felt sorrow because he sinned against himself. He, he felt sorrow that he sinned. I can't believe what I've done. I just got to tell you, I hear Christians say that all the time. It's not, I can't believe how I sinned against God. You see, godly sorrow. You're sorrowful. Because of how your sin affected God with worldly sorrow. You're sorrowful because of how your sin affected you. You're sorrowful because of how you 
feel. You're sorrowful because of the, the consequences that your sin brought upon you. You're sorrowful because of the consequences your sin brought upon your family. It's worldly sorrow, and God says it stinks. Any way you slice that kind of repentance, you're the focal point. And you know what? When we have worldly sorrow, if we had it all to do over again, and you wouldn't feel guilty, and you wouldn't have to suffer any of the consequences, and your family wouldn't have to pay any of the consequences, you know what? You'd do it all over again. Because God was not really the issue. But you see, with Peter, according to Luke 22 and verse 61, Peter denied the Lord three times. He sinned against God. And you know what broke Peter's heart? You remember what Luke 22, 61 says? Do you remember what it was? The Lord turned and looked at him. And when he did, you know what the verse says? Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord. You see, the issue with Peter's sorrow that led to his repentance was God and God's word. The issue with Judas's sorrow that led to his repentance was himself. He repented himself. And just note what each of them did in their attempt to make the thing right. According to John chapter 21, verses 15 to 17, Peter's repentance brought him face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ himself making his confession. But watch what Judas did. It's right here in verse 4 of Matthew 27. Judas's repentance brings him to the priest and he makes his confession to a priest. Now listen, I, I don't want to be a smart aleck. I really don't. But you may be here today and you don't know a whole lot about the Bible. But now listen, you don't have to know a whole lot about the Bible to be able to understand that when you sin, there's a right place to make your confession and there's a wrong place to make your confession. You can do like Peter and you can confess to the Lord or you can do like Judas and you can confess to a priest. But only one is acceptable with God. And again, I'm, I'm not trying to be smart, but I would just say this, that whoever you're going to choose to confess your sin to, please do make sure that whoever he is, he does not have any sin himself. And let me just tell you, that's going to narrow your search for somebody to confess to down to one just real quick. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 1 Timothy 2.5 says there is, count them, one mediator between God and man. And bless her heart, it ain't Mary. There is one mediator between God and man, and it's not a woman at all. Listen to it. The man, but not just any man, the God-man, the man Christ Jesus. And that's where we make our confession. And, and, and yeah, yeah, 
You see, because we're all good Baptists, we, we say, yeah, yeah, that's, that's right, Pastor Mark. Preach that. But I'll just tell you, the pastors of this church, we spend a whole lot of our time dealing with people with worldly sorrow over their sin who want to use us as their priests to make their confession to and to show their contrition to. And the reason they want to search us out is because they don't have godly sorrow. Now, if you ever get in a sin problem, we want to do everything that we can possibly do to help you. But please understand, you come to us with your sin, and our job is not to make you feel better about that thing. You better deal with God. You better go make your confession to him. And if you want to find your way out and you don't know how you got there and you don't know the way back in, then buddy, come to us and we'll do everything that we can possibly do. But don't come to us and try to make yourself feel better by telling us how sorry you are. I would never do this to my family. I can't believe I did this to my family. And I just got to tell you, that's why we spend so much time with, with, with people and they can't seem to ever get out of the thing. And it just comes down to worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow. Okay. I know that's not answering our question, but I had to say it. Okay, so check it out. Judas has got this, this self-induced guilt trip thing going in verse 3. The worldly sorrow, and he repented himself. And he comes back to the boys who gave him the money to sell Jesus out, okay? And the rest of the verse 3 says that Judas brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I feel terrible. I have sinned and that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And I love the tender compassion the priests have for him. They said, what's that to us, chump? See thou to that. In other words, hey, don't be coming in here talking that trash. And please understand, this has to be their response. You know why? Because they're stinking in on the deal. What are they going to say to him to help him get right with God? Because whatever they tell him, they're going to have to do themselves. I mean, to listen, to even acknowledge his sin, they've got to acknowledge their sin and they're not about to do that but here, here's Judas with all, all this guilt of his sin in betraying the Lord and, and you gotta love the phrase innocent blood with the definite article the innocent blood this isn't just like you know a guy that's innocent of a crime this is the innocent blood say amen even if you don't know why okay and in his uh, attempt here to make some sort of, of restitution to relieve some of his guilt, he, he's brought the money that they gave to him for selling Jesus out. And at this point, you know, he comes in, I've sinned, y'all! And they said, big trip. Don't come in here with all of that. And, and so he, he, he's figured out there in verse 4 that they're not going to have any more to do with him. And so in verse 5, Judas cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed. Okay? So now we're in the temple. Okay? You see yourself there? We're in, we're in the temple. We're, we're watching this whole deal come down. 
Judas comes in, throws the deal, and he jets out the back. So here's this 30 pieces of silver laying on the floor. Now whose money is it? Well, watch verse 6. Because the chief priest don't want anything to do with this money. I mean, they're not about to receive the money for themselves. Hey, great, guys, lunch money. And what's more, they're not, they're not even about to receive this money into the temple treasury. I mean, as far as they're concerned, this is Judas's money. Verse 6, And the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. And I'm telling you, y'all, this is the part that is just mind-boggling to me. I mean, check this out. They've schemed. They've lied. They've been devious. And all that's the good news. Because in verse 1, <laughs> they've even plotted to kill God in human flesh. And here they are in verse 6, meticulously wanting to abide what God says, by what God says is, is lawful. I mean, go figure. They don't want to do anything that would violate the law of God when it is their plan that at that very second is coming to fruition to annihilate the God of the law. Wow. But again, here's this money. Now, I'm just telling you, if you walk into this story right now and you walk up to these chief priests and you ask them, now, wh whose money is this here? What are they going to say to you? That it's theirs? Not on your life. Um, we, verse 4, they don't want any connection with this money in any way, shape, or form. Are they going to tell you, oh, that's, that's God's money? Absolutely not. Verse, verse 6. You see, they understand the principle of Deuteronomy 23, 18, that there's some money that God doesn't want coming into the offerings. And at least they've got enough discernment to realize that blood money is one of those kind of offerings. God doesn't want it in the treasury. And they knew they couldn't go over there and just pick up that money off the floor and use it in the temple treasury like nothing ever happened. Because, but they knew that they had to do something with this money, right? I mean, it's just laying on the floor. So verse 4 says, they took counsel. They put their heads together and said, oh, buddy, what are we going to do with Judas's dirty, stinking money? What are we going to do, fellas? I mean, we can't put it in the treasury. One guy said, well, I certainly ain't taking it. And the rest of them say, well, I ain't either. And then one of the guys says, I've got a great idea. You know the potter? The potter's got a field for sale. Why don't we go down, buy the field in Judas's name, and listen, we'll use it for a great benevolent cause. We'll use it to bury strangers or foreigners in. The rest of the guys, beautiful, Charlie, beautiful. That's a perfect plan. And, and so they, they, they do it. And, and so, I, I mean, you, you see by the text now, okay, now, now you have to give me this. They're going to go down, they're going to buy this field. They're going to attach their names to this field. 
Uh-uh, buddy. They don't want any connection with this money. They're going to go down and buy this field in the name of the temple treasury. They're going to go down, and whose name's going to go on that deed? Uh, yes, sir. We're, we're, we're buying it with the money of Judas. Judas Iscariot. I-S-C-A-R-I-O-T. Okay, so, so whose money actually purchased the field? Judas's, right? Just what Acts one eighteen says. But who actually came and laid down the cash? The chief priests, just like Matthew twenty six six and seven said. There's no contradiction there. You say, okay. Well, what about that second one? I want to see you get around that sucker. Okay. How, how, how Judas actually died, okay, because, of course, one place specifically says he hanged himself. I, I wanted to say hung, but the Bible said hanged, and so I looked hung up in the dictionary, and it ain't there, y'all. <laughs> really? Hanged. I, I have a hard time using that verb there, you know what I'm saying? He hanged himself. And the other place most definitely says that he fell. Okay, so what are you going to do with that? Well, you know what I'm going to do with that? I'm just going to stick with the Bible, and I'm just going to keep reading, okay? Because if I keep reading in Matthew 27, you know what? It resolves the cord here. It's all in there. It's like prego, man. It's in there. It's in there. Now, now I, I, you're here in Matthew 27, verse 5, is, is where it tells us how he died. Judas comes into the temple, cast down the pieces of silver, and departed, and went and hanged himself. Okay, now, evidently, in the, in the, the whole midst of Judas negotiating with the chief priest, evidently the, the subject of the potter's field must have come up because we know from Acts chapter 1, when Judas departed from the temple at this point, he went out to the very field the chief priest purchased by proxy in his name. So evidently, this field thing had been something they had discussed. I mean, it's just too coincidental. He's going to go do this thing at the very field that they decide they're going to purchase in his name. Okay? So here's Judas. He departs, and he goes out to the property, and he finds just the right tree right on the edge of a cliff. And if you go to the book of Jeremiah, the prophecy will tell you exactly where he was. He comes out to the, the southern part of the property there, right on the edge of a cliff, and he climbs up the tree. He gets up into the tree, and he takes the rope out of his robe, gets out there on the branch, and he ties that baby onto that branch. And he slips that noose around his neck. He climbs out onto that branch, and all of a sudden, he just lets go. And the rope runs down its full length, and all of a sudden, wham! Immediately breaks his neck, and his lifeless body just swings back and forth on that rope. And the rope just sways back and forth, back and forth for the next several minutes, until finally... It just stops. Now, 
if you keep reading here in Matthew 20, 27, while all of this has been going on, Jesus has been going through the whole Pilate deal, okay? He's been taken out to hang on a tree of his own, if you will. And I mean, listen, what an unbelievable, ironic contrast. I mean, check this out. In, in one part of the city, here is Jesus, according to the book of Galatians, hanging on a tree to pay for the sins of the whole world, including Judas's. That's why he is hanging on that tree while at the same time, Judas in another part of the city is hanging on another tree with a noose around his neck in an attempt to pay for his own sin because he refused to come to Jesus with his sin. But at this point in the story, in Matthew 27, I get it, they're both hanging on a tree. Jesus suspended with nails in his hands and his feet and Judas with a noose around his neck. And at this point, okay, Judas is, is hanging there. Jesus is still alive. But, but now Judas has already died. His soul and his spirit have already descended down into the bottomless pit. But his body is still hanging on that tree. And now notice down in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, what time is that? noon, around 12 noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Okay, so from noon until approximately 3 o'clock in the afternoon, it's dark. And verse 46 says, about the ninth hour, Jesus cries out. And down in verse 50, he cries out again with a loud voice and yielded up the ghost. Now watch verse 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain, or two, from the top to the bottom, from God down to man. And check this out. And the earth did quake. Oh, a little, little tremor, I guess. No. So much so that the rocks rent. You know what it means? They split into pieces. And when they did, what do you think happened to my boy Judas as he's dangling from that tree out there on the edge of that cliff? The tree splits, gives way, and there goes Judas falling head first, just like Acts 1 tells you he did. And he falls down to the jagged rocks below, and when he hits, it literally breaks his body open in his midsection so that all his bowels gushed out. Hey, if you just keep reading Matthew 27, there's no contradiction. Acts 1.18 is just giving you, as, as Paul Harvey says, the rest of the story <laughs> about what happened to him after the earthquake. Hey, the rock's rent in two. He's out on the southernmost part of this tale. He's coming down, baby. I'm telling you, I love this book. You don't mess with this, this, this book. Now, you know what? You're not going to trip God up, y'all. 
Now, you, you, you're probably going to trip me up. I'll give you that. You're, you're going to probably, you know, somebody's going to be a real, you know, discerning soul and come to me after the service and, you know, what about this one over here in Second Chronicles? And you know what? You may get me, but I'm not nervous. I'll go study that out, and one of these days we'll sit down and we'll just compare Scripture with Scripture, and you'll see that it's all in there. And God, God's done a real good job with his book. You say, yeah, but there's one more. Acts 1 says it was called the field of blood because Judas' blood that gushed out onto that thing. And Matthew 27 says it was called the field of blood because it was purchased with the price of blood or blood money. So what do you do with that? And you know what? This one's, this one's really easy because all you got to do is just pay attention to every word. Okay? Now let's look at Acts chapter 1. All right, verse 18 ends with the fact that he burst asunder in the midst and all his bowels gushed out. Verse 19, and it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem. Now, now listen, I mean, folks, this was the talk of the town, this whole thing. You, you know how it goes. Oh, oh, man. It was, it was so gross, man. He was out there laying on those rocks with that noose around his neck, and I'm telling you, man, it looked like an explosion had happened down in his, in his stomach, man, and his guts were just laying all over the place on the ground, and the blood was all over the rocks. And I, I mean, this is, you know, oh, I could hardly stand it. Oh, it was so cool, you know. <laughs> you, you know how that is, people telling you about the accident. Oh, it was so sickening, and then they tell you every gory detail, you know. And, and this is what's going on here. I mean, this is the talk of the town, man. What happened to Judas? Insomuch as the field is called in their proper tongue or their own tongue. Okay, now, whose tongue? Look at, look at the verse. All the dwellers at Jerusalem. And they called it Akadama or whatever which is the word that means, just like verse 19 tells you, it means the field of blood. Okay, but what I want you to see here is that verse 19 is telling you why the local people of Jerusalem called it the field of blood. All the dwellers at Jerusalem called it the field of blood because what happened to Judas there. But now go back to Matthew 27 and watch what it says back here. Now, the context here isn't all the dwellers at Jerusalem. The context here is all about the chief priest, verse 6. And the chief priest took the silver pieces, verse 7, and they, who's they? The chief priest took counsel and bought, who bought? The chief priest, verse 8, wherefore, or for that reason, that field was called the field of blood. And the question is, by who? Who called it that for that reason? All the dwellers at Jerusalem? No, they didn't. Listen, they didn't even know what was going on behind the scenes with all the how and why of, the, you know, the field being purchased. They called it the field of blood because the blood and guts of Judas spilled out all over the thing. Verse 8 of Matthew 27 is telling you why the chief priest called it the field of blood. The same exact name, just a different reason. And you know what? I, I think our, our bookstore, if you will, 
is a great example of that. The, the, the bookstore, our bookstore is called, if you, you see the little sign, probably most of you guys walk by it, and right now for $5 couldn't think of what the name of it is. It's called New Philadelphian Bookstore. Okay? Now, if you were to go up to all of the local people who live in Tuscarawas County and ask them, why is that bookstore called New Philadelphian Bookstore? What are they going to say to you? Duh. <laughs> it's called that because it, first of all, is a book store that is located in New Philadelphia. So it's New Philadelphian Bookstore. Welcome to planet Earth. Okay, now, if you've been in this church for any length of time, you know that it's called New Philadelphian Bookstore, not because of its location. We call it the New Philadelphian Bookstore because it's a statement of desire. It's a statement of, of purpose. Listen, in Revelation 2 and 3, seven letters to seven churches that represent seven periods of church history, the last of which we're living in right now, the Laodicean church period, the the the, the Though man thinks it's the greatest time in human history, as far as God is concerned, it is the absolute worst time, and I'm talking about in Christianity. That's God's read on the thing. He says, you make me want to hurl in Revelation chapter 3. But the greatest period of church history was the one that preceded the one that's going on right now. It was the Philadelphian church period. It was the time of the greatest preaching it was the time of the greatest preachers. It was the greatest time of missions on this planet as this book was going to the ends of the earth and people all, it was the time of the greatest revivals, man. The power of God was coming down like never before. And what has been the theme of this church for several years now is we're praying that God will make us a Philadelphian church in this Laodicean age that the power of God will come down in this place and that we'll take this book like they did to the ends of the book, or the ends of the earth, and we'll preach this book it, no matter what it costs, no matter who, if anybody likes it or if they don't like it. We, we want this to be a new Philadelphian church, not because we're located in New Philadelphia, but because we want God to do something new in this place and that's why we call it New Philadelphia. Same name, just different reason. And that's exactly what's taking place here. Chief priests call it the field of blood because it was blood money that they used to purchase it and to bury strangers in. The people of the local area called it the field of blood because there was a nasty pile of blood that was spilt out there from Judas. And you know what? You say, hello, you mean we, we went, we took the whole service today to just talk about that contradiction? You know what? It was, I'm telling you, I got so many people that asked about that. I felt like, hey, this is the most important thing we need to do right now. We need to just answer that. And, and you know what? The, the questions, just so some of you... It wasn't like everybody was ready to cash the book in and say, I don't believe in God anymore. You know, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't that. It was just, what, how, 
how do you answer that? And, and what I want you to see is, is God has just done a masterful job with this book. This book has answers, and you need to just let it do its thing. Let it, let it answer it. And I don't know what need you've got going in your life right now. Listen, I don't know what need you've got going in your life right now. I'll just tell you this. The answer's in there for that, too. And maybe we didn't, maybe, you know what, maybe you came in today with so many needs and all of that, and you're like, I wish, I wish we weren't in the book of Revelation. I wish we were in some practical book, and I wish he'd just give some practical message that had to do with my problem. You know what? It doesn't get any more practical than what we did today. You're going to walk out of here today going, you know what, God? I'm just going to take you at your word, and I'm going to take my problem, and I'm going to attach your word to it, and I'm going to leave it there because I believe I can trust every word of this book. And again, I don't know what you're carrying, but would you do this? Give it to God. Take God's answer for that. And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want to say to you, I believe that this book teaches that we are living in the very last of the last days. And I don't know to this point what excuse that you've given in your own mind to reject the offer that the God of the Bible is giving to you to receive His Son as your only means of salvation. I do know this. I do know that because of human nature, we're just prone to give some kind of excuse. And a lot of people's excuses, well, the Bible's full of contradictions. And that works for them. They don't, they don't know one of them, but it works for them because they don't want to face the issue of truth. Other people use other kind of reasons to rationalize and justify the offer of God as he stands with outstretched arms saying, Come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your soul. I'll take your sin and remove it. And today, if you're here and you've never received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, if God is speaking to you today, and, and you know what, that's, that's God's job. What he tells me is to preach that book. And what he says is through the foolishness of preaching, people will be saved. And as I was doing that, that foolish exercise up here for the last hour and five minutes, if what God has been doing is taking his book to your heart and saying, I brought you to this place because I want to change your life today. I want you to come to me with your sin. and I want you to leave with my righteousness. And if God is speaking to your heart today, we want you to know that our service is going to be concluded, believe it or not, in just another second. Our pastors are going to be up on either side of the front of this room, positioning themselves there for you. Because if God's been speaking to you, why don't you just come to one of these men and say, you know what, I, I need to just talk to somebody about what's going on. You, you don't need to get some eloquent speech all put together. Just come, and nobody's going to coerce you to do anything that you don't want to do, but we would love the opportunity today to be able to take this book and show you today how you can come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads. <clears throat>
And now, Lord, I, I do pray for people that are in this room that don't know you. And I pray that the Spirit of God will do what human reasoning and human effort can never do. I pray that you would reprove them of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. We understand, Lord, that no, no man comes to you unless you, Father, draw them. And so we're asking you now, draw people in this room that don't know you. Draw them to yourself. Give them the courage to talk to one of our pastors. And Lord, we want to thank you for the book that you've placed into our hands. It is, the, the further we go, the more unbelievable it is of how you put this thing together. And we're, we're grateful that we have it in our own language and we can trust it. And that it is a sure foundation for our life and for eternity. And I pray that you'd help us to take what's going on in our life and trust your word with our needs. And help us in these last dark days to get the message that changed our life to the lives of people that so desperately need to hear it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.